0: Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at SchoolStatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, Episode 79, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. What one superintendent did to close the homework gap, and there's a new tool to help schools combat the growing vaping problem. Stay with us class dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through stories each week we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education plus we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community this week athena it's a free tool that will allow teachers to share lesson plans and ideas Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here, and I'm joined by teacher extraordinaire Lissa Pruitt. Russ Davis has the evening off. Lissa, how are you doing? I'm great. Are you ready for Christmas? Like, have you gotten the shopping done? No. No. I used to
1: be so good about making an Amazon cart and buying a little bit at a time, but it gets harder when your kids get older. It's like, it's hard. They don't need anything. And then my boys are so sweet. They don't, they say they don't really need or want anything my yeah. one of my sons wants this toothbrush that has it's like this expensive toothbrush that has this uv light on it right right so it cleans like a it a little cubby hole or something oh, yeah, that it goes in i yeah. know i'm like i mean is that really what i'm gonna give him but i guess it is <laughs> i was
0: saying this may already exist but they should do the same thing with pacifiers where like it has a little carrying case that you stick it in and it's a uv light yeah people drop their pacifiers all on the, the time ground, on the ground right that would make sense right yeah. maybe it exists i don't know But I'm starting to feel bad for um, like the UPS and the USPS folks. Like, like really like I'm ordering so much stuff and it's like staggered and I just see them working all the time. I had the postal service show up at my house yesterday, 7 a.m. They were dropping stuff off at my house at 7 a.m. And then they came again later in the day. And I felt bad. Like, I was like, I didn't mean for you to have to make two trips to my house.
1: (laughs) They're like, look at my face. This is the face of someone. (laughs) Right.
0: And and I'm starting to be like, you know, maybe if they would just be a little bit more efficient, you know, but it's not, they don't control it. They're just doing their job. They're running stuff. But I mean, I think that's just the load that, you know, the internet companies are are putting on these delivery and they're getting paid, but still, you know, it's a tough time of year for them, I imagine. Let's get back on track. Let's uh, go ahead and jump into the teacher's lounge. What do you know?
1: Okay, so do you know what the homework gap is, Nick?
0: Um, I mean, no.
1: Um, um, no. No, I don't. Okay, so it's basically where you have children that are able to do certain assignments and things at home, mm-hmm. whether they're required to be done at home or whether they didn't finish them during the school and they finish them up at home, and they are dependent on a material that maybe another student doesn't have. So, for example, like a computer where you have to or go home and type something yeah. or the internet, yeah. yes, where you have to go home and research something or you do this online math practice. And if you have students, which this affects 12 million students right. in the United States, that don't have Wi-Fi or they don't have a computer or they don't have a means to do that, then there's a gap. There's, that's Believe it or not,
0: this mindset. has always been a concern of mine. Like, seriously, because it's like... There is, we're in a rural area around mm-hmm. here. And um, we have good internet service, but you go just outside of the, the city where we are and people don't have access to right. it. And what it reminded me of was almost the mission of, ironically, we were just talking about this, the United States Postal Service. The whole mission was to get mail to anywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, If it needs to get there, we're going to find a way to get there. It's almost like we're in a world now where the same needs to happen with the internet. Like, does government need to step in and provide internet in these rural areas where you know, capitalism doesn't get it there. I don't know. Yeah. Just just me.
1: Well, so there is a superintendent that took matters into her own hands. Mm. They were super excited in Winterset Community Schools, which is in Iowa. They had just adopted the one-to-one program, which means for this school is Chromebooks, Um, you know, so um, every child has a device, which is great. Right. But then when they take those devices home and they don't have Wi-Fi, then it's Then there's still the homework gap. So the superintendent, whose name is Susie Mead, was super upset about it because she was like, This isn't, we're still in the same spot. We're not truly one to one. Right. We're not. And so um, she was having complaints from parents saying, We can't do this. Like, this is great that y'all have these Chromebooks, but we don't have this. You know, we don't have the means. We don't have the Wi Fi, whatever. So she went to the Chamber of Commerce in her town and then. And said, This is what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna ask businesses to partner with me mm-hmm. and she got the go ahead. And she literally took days and went door to door from business to business of places that she felt that her students in her school district would be welcome. Right. And asked if they would mind sharing their Wi Fi with So basically the a student can so walk into a coffee with shop with their parents and yes and, and borrow Wi Fi to do their homework. And she ended up making a this I love this part. She made a decal a little window decal to stick in the window of these businesses that say that they support the Winterset community schools. And so then, I mean, she said no one told her no.
2: Yeah. Not a single business told her no. And
1: this was a year ago that she first did this program. They've had, there's no more homework gap at all. They've had zero complaints from any of the restaurants and the coffee shops, and right,
0: they're probably picking up a little business. They're all
1: fine. They say yeah. the kids are all well behaved, and that it brings a new life to their business, and they're happy for it. And they've had zero complaints from the parents as far as you know, t- you know, having a void with technology.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is awesome. This is a, you know, a superintendent going out of her way to find a solution. Now, it's not a one hundred percent solution. I still feel for that. The kids probably can't go into their bedroom. And right. work on their homework, but at least it's you know a community coming together and trying to fix that. And I know there's probably some listeners out there right now who are thinking, if you grew up in you know in a populated area, let's just say you grew up outside where I did, outside of Washington D.C., and you live in this affluent Northern Virginia area, you're going to find it hard to believe that there's places in this country that don't have internet access, mm-hmm. but there are like, right. and there's a lot, and um, you know it's you, even if there's just a few, th- those students are at a disadvantage. And so this is good to see i
1: I think so, and so, like I said, this was a year ago, and it's caught on with other school district districts. I know Athens, Georgia has done it, mm-hmm. and I love the the creating the logo to put because it's just it's just a visual way of saying we are a business and we support our community schools like this is doesn't cost us anything, and we we support our schools, and this is one way we do it. And it's just only opening the door for more interactions from the school district to the businesses that surround that area.
0: Right. Well, hopefully, um, you know, we get to a place where I think even rural areas. And I think, you know, for a while, we always looked at the internet as a like hardwired type thing. You know, mm-hmm. you have to run a cable to a house. Where we are with with cellular, it's getting a mm-hmm. little bit better where the coverage. But even in like parts of Texas, like if you drive through the state of Texas, there's areas that have no cell phone coverage either, so that's not really a solution.
1: Well, and sometimes you know? it's not just about coverage, it's about cost. Yeah, that's and true. So that comes with that. That's what's great about being able to go sit at this park near this coffee shop and you're using, mm-hmm. you know, their Wi-Fi. That's very kind of those businesses.
0: Right. Well, good stuff. Good feel-good story there. Um, vaping. Ugh. Yeah, I know, right? See, Ugh. like, you're in elementary school is where you're teaching, but mm-hmm. I know you have kids that are in the middle school and the high school, so... You're probably aware of how out of control of vaping, and we talked about this probably like 50 episodes ago. Mm-hmm. But like, it seems maybe because you know we just know kids that are this age, but it seems like it's out of control, right? It's
1: a problem. It's a big O problem.
0: It's <laughs> like we got past the oh, we don't have to worry about cigarettes. I don't say don't worry, but it, it kind of it's not cool like it used to be. But now vaping's cool, right? Well,
1: here's the deal. This is something I was saying with another mother along a, a couple of weeks ago, a long time ago. If somebody smoked cigarettes, let's let's just pretend we were back in middle school and we knew someone smoked. Well, they hid it, right? They mm-hmm. didn't brag about it. They hid it. And then you heard, I heard they smoked. I heard, you know. But that's not what's happening with vaping. It is not hidden. It's it's like right in front of you or in the classroom. or Does that make sense? Do you think like, it's
0: happening in the classroom? It is
1: happening in the classroom. Because
0: they're so small, like little things, and they're just kind
1: of. Yes, kinda... and so then all the other kids know that that child just did it, And, yeah, there's a school district that is near my school district. It's not in our district. It's Mm. a neighboring district. And they um, just busted a kid for vaping in class. It was like a big deal Um, because they were, you know, had one of those tiny like a little USB where they were, you know, faking it. But then they started blowing rings. And so that, I mean, that's tobacco on campus.
0: So when you're hearing about it on campus, how are kids normally getting caught? And are Are they even getting caught as much as they should? Well, they
1: weren't. This child in particular was not caught by the teacher. It was another student that slid the teacher a note to say, this is happening in your class and you're not aware of it. And I know you don't know what it is, but if you just pay attention, you'll see. So then the teacher the next day paid attention and saw, you know, that as she was turning around or, you know, the child putting, you know, his face down in his sweater you know, and then they were able to to catch him, and then he's three days suspended. that's that's what he's got.
0: Well, I found this story and it's um, out of Illinois, and it seems like it's from a a rural community over there. and it's Prairie Grove school district um, and they are adding sensors to detect vaping. and they now exist. So okay. a company named Soda Technology has created these sensors. But here's where you kind of worry about sensors, right? Well, often vaping's probably taking place in the bathroom. Well you can't put up recording device of any type. You can't have a camera in a bathroom and you really can't even have like an audio recording device. So this company has created the sensor that does detect the actual vaping fumes, whatever. And then as soon as it happens in real time, it sends out an alert to assign smartphones of administrators and teachers. So I guess if you're the teacher near the bathroom or an administrator oh, near the bathroom. Lucky. Yeah, then that would be me at yeah, my school. <laughs> right. Then it's going to go off. And so it's going to help maybe curb the problem at the schools. Now it's not going to answer the vaping problem, but yeah. it might you know I guess the kids are starting to get suspended. It may it may become a little bit more of a of a big deal. Um, these sensors also can detect really they, they don't record audio, but they can detect abnormally loud sounds. So they claim that the sensor can also detect a fight. So now
1: that is helpful in the bathroom.
0: Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. So if a fight breaks out, this thing may go off and it's going to say, you know, audio alert or whatever. Um, I'm actually going to try to get an interview with the company because I want to hear more about this and, and just how practical it is for school districts. But I thought it was pretty interesting because I don't know what schools can do at this point.
1: I, I, it is very hard to detect and very easy to hide um but it is not something that the kids are keeping secret they're they're almost flaunting it that's the problem is it's like it's you know you used to would worry about your bad reputation you know but there is no bad there's no stigma attached to it among these children they at least from what I keep hearing, it's like, yeah, they do it, but it doesn't really hurt you. It's not really harmful. And I'm like, yes, it is. Like, right. so it's, it's this whole, it's like, it's because it's not a lit cigarette with a fire. They think it's not harmful right? because they feel like it's just, Oh, it's just vapor. That's all it is.
0: Well, I mean, it's, it's not just vapor. I mean, that's, that's the name that's alone. What the kids yeah. is kind right. of a deceiving and anytime you're, you know, ingesting some sort of chemical that you really don't know a whole lot about, it's probably not the best idea.
1: I agree. And even in, I heard it is a huge problem on college campuses, like in college classes. Yeah. And in, you know, just even just college lifestyle that it's everywhere in the dormitories that it's, it's constant and that you smell it constantly and see it.
0: Wow. Well, hopefully these sensors may help curb that a little bit if they're affordable, maybe more schools can can put them in. So uh, we'll try to get you more information on that in the uh, future. Are you ready for uh, today's bright idea? Yep. We are talking to a gentleman we've interviewed before. His name is Peter Nielsen. He's the one who we talked about the uh, distant reading in the past. That was the ability to like read large amounts of text with computers and like find trends within the text. Well, he's actually been working on a side project for the past little while with some colleagues. And- Essentially, what it is, is it's called Athena, but it is a place for teachers to offer their materials and then share them with other teachers. So it's this learning community, but it's a nonprofit. There's no money exchange or anything. It's not like teachers pay teachers. And he'll talk to us about why he thinks this might be a uh, more beneficial model than saying just the paying system. So,
1: yeah. Well, I know with me, as a, I'm like the only art teacher at my school. So it's hard to you know bounce ideas so i would love something like that to be able to share with other art teachers at other schools well let's hear what
0: he has to say Our guest in today's Bright Ideas segment has created an online platform for teachers to share best practices. Peter Nilsson is an English teacher, but he's been busy building what he calls Athena. Peter, welcome back to the show.
2: Thanks. It's good to be here, Nick.
0: You know, I say welcome back because uh, you were also a guest about four episodes ago where we did a deep dive into distant reading. So if anybody's interested in, in what that's all about, I encourage you to go listen to it. It's really fascinating. But now we're talking about a project that you've been putting a lot of energy into, and that's Athena. So first, kind of let's bring our listeners up to speed. What exactly is your mission with Athena?
2: So the mission of Athena is to create a dynamic and uh, interactive professional memory for the field of education. We started with the realization that, that the field of education has no professional memory, that we have no shared knowledge base like other industries do. Doctors have thousands of years of practices for diagnosis and treatment that they share. Lawyers have hundreds of years of precedent that they can refer back to but we're all reinventing the wheel every day. I think about that as as an English teacher, that there are 10,000 teachers that might teach the great Gatsby, and I have no idea what they're doing. Uh, or that great veteran teachers retire, and with their retirement, evaporates all of their knowledge. And it was to set out to address this challenge that uh, led us to start to, to, to develop Athena.
0: And, and so when you looked online, obviously, if you're going to start a new project, you're going to search and say, is anyone doing this already? What did you find?
2: Absolutely, yeah. So we looked online, and we found that there were dozens of sites that set out to do the same thing. But what we find, uh, what we found, was what I think lots of teachers find—that they were all challenging for a number of three reasons. One, it was hard to find what you're looking for. Two, when you did find things, the quality was unreliable. Or three, it cost money to teachers. And any one of those three challenges is going to prevent a solution from really solving this problem of a shared knowledge base. Uh, some solutions out there were succeeding at creating revenue models that were making successful businesses and making some teachers some money, but it wasn't creating a shared knowledge base. Other organizations were sharing knowledge for free, but it wasn't being shared in a way that was easy to use, uh, or 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 that or that could could accumulate knowledge effectively after this period of search and discovery, we came um, we, we put together a vision for how one might organize information differently and access it differently uh, and put that in front of teachers and they said yes that's that, that's what I want that's what I would use
0: and so I guess as you were saying this this is a free service that that you're building here yes yep and so how how do you do that like why put so much time and effort to it? how do you how do you make it worth your while
2: that that's a really great really great set of questions there um and I, and i hear in that question 1 how do i make it worth my while if if i'm not making something out of it or 2 how do you make an organization sustainable if it is free to teachers exactly uh, and to the first question about what does it mean to me personally well it, it's I'm a teacher, and I have struggled through this problem as every other teacher has, uh, where I have sought to, you know, sought the counsel of the many, many hundreds or thousands of people who are out there, and have found it's hard to do. And know that if we can address this challenge, if we can solve it, if we can create a scalable solution for teachers to share resources easily in a way that aggregates and accumulates knowledge, then it will be a benefit to me uh, and to others. And so, the the, the purpose uh, is is not hard. To to find in the work, um, sustainability—that's a real interesting challenge. I've been doing this as a side project since since I really started investing my time and energy full into it, um, and I have to spend a lot of time researching sustainable revenue models for organizations. and And it is a real challenge. And at, at this point, the way that so far, the way we're pursuing it is through foundation grants to support the solution. There are many philanthropists out there who are interested in helping to address this problem or uh, this challenge. But one of the things we're looking at right now is how to how to then develop uh, a sustainability plan so that you know, the, the, the platform can continue to be free to teachers always, uh, at least the foundational essential tools, but that there can be ways of either doing memberships with schools or, or other approaches um, that require a subscription or that provide access to more premium tools that teachers might want to use.
0: Now, the uh, the website to get started, if somebody's interested, it's, it's teachathena.org, right? yes okay so so you go there and and i'm looking at the page it is a a simple approach to it and i think that's by design right you try to keep this very bare bones
2: Yes, and so there there are a couple of things. One, if you go to www.teachathena.org, you'll find what is essentially the informational outward facing uh, page. That that is where we have a description and overview of what we're doing, the responses we've gotten from teachers and some news updates and how we're progressing. The platform itself for for sharing practices is not at that exact address. It's at a slightly different address, but it's one that we haven't opened fully to the public to say please everyone come one come all because we're just not ready for it yet there's plenty of great content there but the community is intentionally small at this point though we're in the process of this coming year of opening it up to a much larger audience and so we're interested in finding teachers or schools who would love to connect with other teachers to share their practices to find other practices um and, uh, and, and, and we hope to introduce people a little more intentionally until we're ready to, to fully open it uh, to a larger crowd. But yes, to your original observation, a design principle all the way through is simplicity and clarity. If you're a
0: user and and you want to be one of, I guess you call them a beta user at this point, like Mm -hmm. you would go to teachathena.org and there's Mm -hmm. a little tab, I think it says start now. And I guess you kind of go and you fill out a form. And is that Mm -hmm. how you get within the system? You have somewhat of an approval process at this point?
2: That will that will put us in a list of people who are interested. And in the coming months, actually, we'll be sending out emails to say, um, all right, now we're interested in people who are who are looking to, to test it. We're not restricting it and assessing people based on whether we think they should join. We're, we're, we're simply taking interest at this point, And when we are ready, we will open it to people who have expressed interest.
0: So, so when it's fully open, what do we envision this looking like? Talk to me about the, the actual user per-
2: interaction. Yes, I would love to give you a, a walkthrough right now and anyone else. The podcast makes it a little difficult to see what we're doing. Right. But the actual experience, what makes this different from other platforms out there is, is, are two different features in particular. One, we all have the experience of going to sites, the first of which is Google, the others of which might be sites like Teachers Pay Teachers or Share My Lesson or, or other platforms that are out there. And we have a search bar and we type in what we're looking for and we get a search results list. Um, and, and that is the paradigm for information organization. That we've seen since Google and Yahoo faced off in the late 90s about how we were going to organize the web. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Google won. You, You can't do hierarchical directory trees like Yahoo did when the amount of material, amount of information that you have is so large. But what Yahoo showed us back in the 90s was that there are other ways to organize information. Hierarchical directory trees are quite useful for organizing information. So is what Wikipedia does, which is a topic orientation. When you want information on Wikipedia, you go to a topic page, and there you find everything you need about the civil rights movement, or there you find everything you need about William Shakespeare. and also, we have environments like Quora or Apple Support Menu and other groups, Stack Overflow, where you have people typing in questions and getting a series of responses and choosing the best response. And that shows us that there are multiple ways of organizing information. And so the hypothesis that we had from the beginning, one of the hypotheses that we had from the beginning, was that a topic-oriented approach to teacher resource organization was what teachers were looking for. So when you go to Athena, to the application for Athena, you uh, would ty- you, you would find a search bar and you type in what you're looking for. It could be genetics, it could be uh, quadratic formula, it could be the great Gatsby, and you would arrive at a topic page. And that topic page would be organized based on how your topic is organized, just as it is Wikipedia. So If you went to the Great Gatsby page, it might be organized by Chapter 1, Chapter 2, Chapter 3 to Chapter 9, and then uh, materials for the entire text, and then materials based on characters, and you would find discussion questions, classroom activities, assessments, uh, multimedia objects. Um, If you went to the civil rights movement, you you would still find questions, activities, assignments, and assessments uh, and multimedia objects, but you would find them organized chronologically by 18th century resistance movements and 19th century abolitionism and then different periods within the 20th century. If you were going to quadratic formula, for example, or teaching uh, factoring in math, you might find ways to introduce the material, problem selections, uh, different assessment approaches. Um, So you'd find information organized first in a topic-oriented architecture like that, so that the materials are organized. And remarkably, very few uh, sites use this approach, which was stunning. Uh, Virtually none, in fact, except for one or two small commercial sites that we've seen. So
0: if... Do you plan on crowdsourcing the information in the sense that and stick with me that you type in sure. say, uh, William Shakespeare, and let's say you have 200 lesson plans that ultimately come up or 2000. And mm-hmm. how do you even know which one's the best? Do you plan on using some sort of system where, you know, you can thumbs up it or give it stars to say, you know, this is a great lessons
2: plan? That's a really great question, and that's, that, that's the second challenge of those three that I mentioned at the beginning. The first is design, and our approach to that is a topic-oriented architecture. Is it easy to find what you're looking for? The second is quality. How do you know that what you're finding is of good quality? The third is price. Um, <clears throat> and the quality feature is critical because we've all been to sites where we have also found hundreds of different resources, and we just don't know what's good. Uh, online, there are three different approaches to assessing quality, Um, and we are taking all three of these as we grow um, and not focusing on just one or the other. We think about these as affirmations, algorithms, and editors. Affirmations are the kinds of things we see like likes or hearts, things that give a binary I like this or this is good or I endorse this. And those can be useful. Star ratings can fit into this category as well, a little bit. Uh, And those can be useful because they they tell us that when, oh, when a thousand people think this is good, it probably is. The challenge with the affirmations approach is that one, we don't know who's giving the affirmations. So we don't know how reliable those endorsements are or if they're bots, for example. (laughs) Two, um, there tends to be first mover advantage. When a hundred people like something and it moves to the top of the list, people generally stick just to that item and very few people go down to the bottom of the search results. And so therefore, it's difficult to surface new and improved and organically uh, better m- material over time as as the knowledge uh, general knowledge aggregates. Well,
0: I'll every, tell you, every podcaster knows exactly what you're talking about right there, too.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yes. So the second thing then is well, algorithms. Algorithms are a smart way to enhance that. Um, and and star ratings are a way to use light algorithms. Things with five stars move to the top. Things with one star is, one star move to the bottom. Uh, but there are there are many other ways that algorithms can prove particularly useful. Um, And those can be everything. Think of the way that the New York Times can gather information on, on people who visit the New York Times website. They know who clicks on a headline. They know who scrolls to the bottom. They know who forwards it to a friend they know who comments on it. Each of those is a degree, as a greater degree of engagement, a greater depth of engagement with a particular article. Now think about that with teaching resources. Who clicks on the resource? Who reads the whole thing? Who saves it to their own profile? Who makes their own copy of that saved copy and and edits it uh, and improves it for their classroom? Who shares it out? That is another degree of depth of engagement, which is a proxy for quality, because you're investing your time and energy into it. And that can be a much more accurate portrayal of whether people value the materials that they're seeing. That can be a much more valuable portrayal than people who give something four stars without even having fully looked at it, um, uh, or, or given something a like because it's made by somebody they know. Um, and so algorithmically, that can provide us some really valuable information. Of course today, algorithms are falling out of favor as we start to increasingly recognize as a culture that they can be particularly dangerous, as we're seeing in a lot of news these days regarding Mm -hmm. Facebook and Twitter and other things. Um, And and there's there's little as valuable and effective for evaluating quality as an editor, as a person, as a human being who is an expert. Uh, And so building ways in which Uh, teachers uh, and other leaders can validate content and say, this is something that is appropriate for our school and signal that to other teachers. Ways in which teachers or professionals who are are well-versed in the principles of cognitive science and design, that they can say, yes, this is something that that is really aligned with um, with learning science or people who are really keyed into state standards uh, or national standards uh, and they can say yes these are things that are that are validated for for certain uh, standards environments that is a, a third function and a very important function it's the least scalable when we're talking about hundreds or thousands or hundreds of thousands of materials and teachers um, but it is something that is essential in building a community of people who are sharing materials
0: do you know what direction you plan to go with athena
2: Uh, all three of those okay Um, there's there's definitely room for all three of those and uh, it would be knowing the strengths and weaknesses of 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 each of them, it would be somewhat irresponsible to choose only one. Of course, some of those at this point are are <clears throat> hypothetical, or rather, are, are theoretical, in that we're still a relatively small organization. We have thousands of materials on the platform that teachers are are really saying this is extraordinarily helpful. Um, but we're not yet at the scale where we're generating the kind of data to support uh, the kind of algorithmic approach that we would like. But that that will be coming in the, in the in the next year or two. We expect. So when you say we who's we yeah that's great uh, a team of really committed teachers who teach at a whole bunch of different schools and are currently all working full-time at their educational institutions except for me uh in that i i am a teacher and a, an administrator at deerfield academy where i teach uh, but i'm on sabbatical this year which is a wonderful gift to be able to have a sabbatical so that i can focus on growing athena full-time this year
0: so, so how do you plan on getting the word out other than doing podcasts and stuff
2: Great question. An interesting way to explain this, to explain the approach to getting this out is that one of the exciting aspects of building Athena is learning so much about how networks operate. Athena is a content management system. It's a way to aggregate knowledge, and it's also a social network. Um, So it's a place in which teachers will connect with each other around the stuff of our classes. Um, And Learning about that has been an incredible education, the power of networks. And what's wonderful, as I learn more and more about this, is learning that there are so many effective networks already out there. On Facebook, there are groups of teachers at the secondary and at the primary level who are focused in individual disciplines that number on the hundreds of thousands. On Twitter, there are active conversations. Mm -hmm. Um, And there are also institutions and organizations that have formed consortia of schools, Um, And dis- district leaders who are interested in in in, in promoting uh, useful tools out to their out to their teachers, and so when the time comes, it's a matter of saying, "Hey, uh, networks, are you interested in this in in what we're doing?" And as we've tested that outreach to networks so far, the response has been extraordinarily positive. And that we share it in a small network, and it quickly diffuses around the network because teachers say, "Yes, this is what I'm looking for. Uh, this is uh, this is useful to me." And so when the time comes, comes um, we we hope to first through conversations like these generate interest so we know who to reach out to um, and then second when when the time comes hopefully over the next 18 to 24 months uh, we will be able to then reach out to those folks um, and and say here we are what do you think is this useful to you um, and, and and I would only add just one last thing at the end of that. that. That's a critical component of this, is that I'm not interested in, and I think other people involved are not interested in creating another platform just for the sake of creating another platform. We're doing this because we feel it solves a problem that hasn't otherwise been solved effectively. It's been... We've increasingly found ways of sharing materials online, and, and that's and that's really exciting. And it feels like we're going through a first generation of that, and we're seeing that with platforms like Teachers Pay Teachers. But there's likely going to be a second generation of platforms that enable it to happen even more effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, and that effectiveness is really critical. We want to make sure that what we're doing isn't just a successful organization and that it is sustainable. We want to make sure it's actually Providing real value to teachers that improves practice, wherever teachers access it. And
0: so, you said teachers pay teachers. Let's let's kind of—I hate to pitch you sure. against that—but I want to understand: like, why would Athena be more effective than that?
2: Sure. Yeah, Teachers Pay Teachers is led by great people who care about teachers, and they're 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 getting resources out there, and they're also creating uh, extraordinary value for a small number of teachers relative to the full teacher population who are who are pushing out some good resources, and 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 that's good. Um, what What are the challenges with Teachers Pay Teachers? Is that uh, content is locked and closed, and and what I mean by that is, one, you don't know what you're purchasing when you purchase it. Mm-hmm. Uh, two, it's locked up in documents, which makes it hard to manipulate. Three, there's hardly any way to feed your knowledge back into the community. Um, there's a there's a huge mo- movement that's growing right now, which listeners might be aware of, called the Open Education Resources Movement. And the the Department of Education had a Go Open movement that launched a couple of years ago very successfully. And the whole principle behind the Go Open movement is that um, knowledge for teachers should be open. It, it should be accessible accessible easily. Teachers should be able to revise it and tweak it and customize it for their classrooms very easily. Um, and, And fundamentally, if we have to pay for knowledge, then it is not open, then it is not easily shared, then it is not something that scales across education broadly. Millions of teachers may, might be using uh, Teachers Pay Teachers, are using Teachers Pay Teachers. And that's good. You know, that's great. It's, it's getting information out there, but it's not creating a shared professional knowledge base. Um,
0: that's interesting. You talked about the uh, the open education. We we actually did an episode back uh, episode twenty two with um, mm-hmm. a gentleman by the name of uh, Cable Green, and he is yes. yeah, he's the director of open education for Creative Commons. And, and the whole topic was, you know, that schools can actually use open source textbooks. They really don't need. They could save millions by just going right. out there and pulling up these this information that's out there. So, so I think what you guys are doing, it's great. I mean, it's, it really is probably the future in the sense. And I agree with you. You don't know what you're purchasing always online and, and the mission's different. I think the mission for teachers pay teachers. I mean, yes, it's, it is to share information, but it's also for people, teachers and an organization to make money, but it sounds more Mm -hmm. like you're doing it more of an archival sense and just Mm -hmm. to share information.
2: Yeah. And, and uh, yes, yes. And, uh, not just archival uh, the lang- you 've probably heard language in the last decade or so about repositories of information repositories are relatively static It, it is about collecting information, but it 's also about creating an environment in which that information is organic and and can change. so when teachers find things, we know we have to customize materials for our own classrooms. Um, we want to do that uh, we know our students and we want to do what 's best for them and so creating an environment in which that customization is really is really easy. Uh, the work that they're doing at Creative Commons is excellent. Uh, we are we we've been studying Creative Commons license for a number of licenses for a number of years now, and are planning certainly for the materials that are on um, on Athena to be Creative Commons licensed, so that it is explicit that material is usable by others.
0: Yeah, I mean Creative Commons. Like even if you make a video for your classroom and you put it on YouTube, if you pay mm-hmm. attention when you go to publish that video, you can click give this a creative commons license rather than a YouTube right. license. And it just allows for that to be shared from classroom to classroom, not have to worry about, you know, some sort of uh, payment being owed on the
2: backside. Right. And, and the, the, the intellectual property question in schools is, is actually quite complicated in, in, in word or, or legally or theoretically, when we think about work for hire laws and curriculum that teachers are creating for their schools are technically owned by schools. Um, so so the intellectual property issue is is a little bit of a question in this space <clears throat> but we're also finding that those legal uh, those legal rights that schools and districts have to own and control the intellectual property generally are not being practiced, uh, meaning that the, the schools and districts are not saying teachers, you cannot share this material because it is ours. Generally they're saying, let it go. And teachers who are creating curriculum for their districts and schools are actually selling their materials and teachers pay teachers, which is in some ways in violation of that cop of that intellectual property law. But it, it's just a sign to say that, um, people generally believe that uh, that information about education should be open. Right.
0: Well, let's let's recap just if anyone's confused on where we are with Athena. Right now, you can go to teachathena.org. And basically, mm-hmm. if, you, if you want, at least fill out a form saying, I want to be a part of this when it's live to everybody. Is that right? Am mm-hmm. I understanding that, yes. Right? Yes. So you would just click the, the start now button and, and kind of follow the instructions there. It's very simple.
2: Exactly. Yes. Come to teachathena.org. Let us know you're interested. And in the very near future, we'll be opening up uh, the platform more broadly so that teachers can find and share resources more easily uh, and connect with other teachers uh, around that practice. We're also starting to build, and this might be of interest, or not starting to build, we're in our, our third summer this coming summer of a summer fellowship for teachers, where teachers who would like to work on developing curriculum or surveying additional curriculum and providing and receiving feedback, providing feedback to other teachers on their work and receiving feedback on their work, uh, can, can sign up for a summer fellowship, uh, in, in partnership with their, their school or their district, um, depending on, uh, the school and the district. Um, but so yes, there's opportunity for that. And you can read more about that at teachathena.org.
0: Well, Peter, uh, best of luck with Athena. When you guys go live with this and it's open to everybody, mm-hmm. let me know. I want to have you back on the show so we can talk about it and, and do a deeper dive
2: into what's out there and so forth. Mm-hmm. Great, Nick, I'd love to do that. It it is live for a small number of teachers, you know, in the hundreds, but uh, when it is live for the thousands, I would love to be, I'd love to be back in touch.
0: Great. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Nick. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. We want to hear from you, so if you want to send us an idea or a comment, remember you can always email us at info at We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So if you like what you heard today, please be sure and hit that subscribe button, and we'd also love it if you'd leave us a five-star review. Don't forget you can connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash classdismissedpodcast or on Twitter to search for us by typing in dismiss. On behalf of Russ with school status and Lissa representing all the teachers out there, I'm Nick Ortega go and I'll talk with you next week.
1: Class dismissed.